The following is a sermon by Pastor Todd Dykstra, teaching pastor of Maranatha Bible Church of Comstock Park, Michigan. For more information, go to mbcmi.org. And would you open your Bibles for the last time to Matthew chapter 5. We have arrived at the end of this first chapter in the Sermon on the Mount. This is our 19th message in Matthew chapter 5. We have been working our way word by word, phrase by phrase, verse by verse, section by section, and we come this morning to Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 to 48. You probably know well that Jesus issued many hard sayings in his earthly ministry. There are many things that he said throughout his public ministry that are just hard. Sometimes hard because they're hard to understand. Other times hard because of the demands that they place on us. Let me give you just a few examples of this. Luke chapter 9, he says, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. That's a hard saying because of what requires of us. How about another one? If you, anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. That's hard. That's hard to hear because, first of all, we have to understand what it means, and then we must wrap our minds around what it requires of us. How about Matthew chapter 10, where Jesus says, Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. This is a hard thing. To, To realize that Jesus did not come to bring peace, he came to bring division. Or how about John chapter 6, where he says, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. What does that mean? This is a hard thing for us to hear. We have to understand clearly what that means, and and then we have to understand its implications for our life. So this is just a sampling of some of the hard demands from the lips of our Savior We come this morning to what some have called the most famous of Jesus' hard sayings. It is his command for us to love our enemies. One of the hardest and most challenging situations for us as believers to truly follow Christ in is for us to love those that hate us. It's frankly easy to love those who love us. That's not hard to do. We, we like those who like us. We love those who love us. We enjoy being around those who are friendly toward us, those who are kind toward us, those who don't betray us. That, that's a, a joy to be around those kind of people. We love those people, and yet how much more difficult is it to love those who treat us unjustly, those who harm us, those who attack us, those who slander us, those who put the knife in our back when we're not there, that's hard. How do we deal with those people? If we're all honest, there's something in us that wants to retaliate. There's something in us that wants to get back at people because we we don't like to be treated this way. And so within our human nature, within the very fabric of our DNA is this inherent desire to, to get our pound of flesh, to engage in retribution, to want some level of vengeance. By the way, I believe this is what is fueling the current critical race theory wokeness climate that we're seeing in our culture. We stand firmly against racism, but inherent within that whole movement is essentially a desire motivated by hatred. Yes, it's contributed to by the Marxist ideologies, and yes, it's contributed to by identity politics and attempt to right what is wrong in the supposed power structures of our society, but at the core of the the woke movement, the victimhood movement, is 
hatred for enemies. We get bitter. We get angry. Someone gossips about us. We gossip about them. We, we are the victims of someone's lies, so we want to lie about them. They smear our reputation, and so we want to smear theirs as well. And so when someone causes us harm, our natural reaction always is to lash out. But Christ's way is different. As we said last week, we must not only not retaliate, we are going to learn today that we must also love the very people who treat us poorly. It's a hard issue. It's a very hard issue. And it raises a number of questions like, do I really have enemies? <laughs> I'm a Christian. Aren't I supposed to like everybody? Do I really have enemies? And another question, well, how, how do you square this mandate to love our enemies with the fact that in the Old Testament, God told his people to completely destroy their enemies? How do you square that? And how do you deal with the fact that there's a list of imprecatory psalms in the Old Testament where the psalmist is calling down God's wrath upon his enemies? And how do you deal with Jesus in Psalm 23 or... Matthew 23, rather, where he is confronting the Pharisees and calling them things like whitewashed tombs and hypocrites. And maybe the hardest issue of all, the hardest question of all, is how in the world do I get my heart to a point where I'm willing to love the people that treat me unjustly? It's a hard issue. And I think one of the most difficult things about this whole issue of loving our enemies is that it, it really reveals who we are when someone stabs us in the back and puts the sword through our heart. What comes out when someone treats you that way? What, what's most difficult for us, I believe, is the fact that it reveals who we really are. None of us like to admit this. None of us like to be exposed like this. But if we're all honest, we'll admit that when this kind of unjust treatment happens, our fleshly reaction is to retaliate. And so the question I want to pose to you this morning is, who is this person in your life? Every one of us has one, or two, or three, or four. Every one of us here this morning has someone in our life, maybe a friend, maybe a, a family member, maybe a child, maybe a spouse, maybe a coworker, a boss, someone in your neighborhood, someone in our life that, that we just have trouble getting along with and they've hurt us and they've stepped on us and they've made our life difficult, maybe to the point where we even refuse to talk to them. Maybe someone here in the room. How does Jesus want us to treat them? Listen to what he says starting in verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you're to be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. You remember what Jesus is doing here in Matthew chapter 5. He is giving us six illustrations Six contrasts, and as we've said many times before, they are not contrasts between Jesus' teaching and Moses' teaching. They are the contrasts between the right interpretation of the law and the misinterpretation of the law by the scribes and the Pharisees. They had taken the law of God. They had twisted it to meet their own personal needs. They had misconstrued it in order for them to, to look really super righteous on the outside, when in fact, all it did was veil their hypocrisy. So Jesus comes along and confronts this and says, it's not enough to just look godly, you must actually be godly. 
There must be a righteousness that comes from the inside, from an internal heart transformation, from a heart that's been legitimately and genuinely changed by the Lord Jesus Christ. This is how you know when you are a citizen of Christ's kingdom, when there's something internally that's happened to you that has resulted in a new heart, which comes out not just in some superficial religiosity, but in genuine godliness. Six illustrations. We've seen five so far. The first one was in verses 21 to 26, restored relationships, where it's not enough just to not be angry. You must also go and reconcile with those who you were out of fellowship with. Then verses 27 to 30, the second one, crucified lusts. It's not enough just to not commit adultery. You must also mortify the lusts that drive it. The third illustration, verses 31 and 32, is faithful marriage. It's not enough just to not engage in frivolous divorce, you must also be faithful to your spouse. Fourth illustration, verses 33 to 37, truthful speech. You're going to keep your word. True citizens of the kingdom of God keep their word. They have verbal integrity. Their yes means yes and their no means no. And as we saw last week, the fifth illustration, verses 38 to 42, loving non-retaliation. We're not going to retaliate against those who hurt us. But today you're going to hear the positive side. You're going to hear the positive side of Jesus' instructions when it comes to our enemy. Yes, it's true, we must not engage in retaliation or personal resentment. We must not resist an evil person. We must not be characterized by spite and vengeance. In fact, we're willing to surrender our personal rights, if necessary, to have our other cheek slapped, to go two miles if they ask us to go one. We're going to do that, Lord willing. But Jesus here in the sixth illustration says you got to go beyond that. You've got to actually love your enemies. And it's that issue that I want to address this morning with you. I want to give you two points that will help us overcome our natural hatred for our enemies. Two Instructions, two truths that should help us overcome our natural hatred for our enemies. And again, I want you to ask yourself this question, who is this person in your life? Who do you need to walk out these doors today and apply these instructions to? Who do you need to begin praying about? Who is the person in your life that God wants you to hear very clearly Jesus' instructions So first is a sinful attitude toward enemies. That's point number one in verse 43. And then we're going to look, number two, at a biblical attitude toward enemies in verses 44 to 48. So let's start in the first one. Instruction number one, if we're going to overcome our natural hatred for our enemies, we must understand a sinful attitude toward enemies, you must understand what constitutes a wrong approach. And you need to be attentive here because we have to admit that in our hearts, all of us possess something of this sinful attitude. It's there, it's resident. Because we're fleshly, because we're redeemed, and yet that new man housed, is housed in a fallen flesh, we must admit the fact that there is still within our fallenness this sinful tendency toward our enemies. This is what Jesus confronts in the scribes and the Pharisees. Notice verse 43. Look what he says. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. You remember what we said all along here? Jesus, when he says, you have heard that it was said, is actually quoting what the Pharisees and the scribes themselves were saying. He does the same thing in verse 21, he does it in verse 27, he does it in verse 31, verse 33, verse 38. In each one of those occurrences, you have heard it said, you have heard it said, you have heard it said, you have heard it said. This is him quoting what the scribes and the Pharisees were saying. This is their misrepresentation of the Mosaic law. And yet, in this case, the first part of it's true. Look at the first part. Verse 43, you shall love your neighbor. That's true. That's exactly what the Old Testament said. In fact, if you have a New American Standard Bible this morning, in that Bible, that phrase is in all capital letters to show you that it's a direct quote. Maybe you have a New King James Version. It's in italics to show you that it's a direct quote 
from the Old Testament. It comes from Leviticus 19, verse 18. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. That is the consistent teaching of the Old Testament. This was God's standard for human relationships. It is to love our neighbor as ourself. And if you've ever studied the Ten Commandments, you know that the back half of the Ten Commandments essentially summarizes that law. First half, Numbers 1 through 4, are God's instructions on how we deal with Him vertically. Numbers 5 through 10 are how we deal with each other horizontally, how we love one another. We honor our father and mother. We don't commit murder. We don't uh, commit adultery. We don't steal. We don't bear false witness against our neighbor. We don't covet. That's all summarized in the one instruction, love your neighbor as yourself. That's what the Old Testament taught, clearly, abundantly, many cases, question is, who's your neighbor? Who's your neighbor? Just the person who lives next door? Not according to Jesus. In the story we all know, the parable, the story of the good Samaritan, the compassionate Samaritan, you remember the story there? A, A man, a Jewish man is walking down the road and he gets beaten up by robbers, and they throw him to the side, and eventually a priest comes by and sees him and walks to the other side of the road and goes right past, and then a Levite sees him and wants to avoid him and goes around and keeps walking, and then the Samaritan comes, the half-breed, the despised, rejected Samaritan comes and sees this man and tends to him and cares for him and shows compassion for him and helps him and gets him the resources he needs. And Jesus says, then which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he said, the one who showed mercy to him. Your neighbor is anyone you meet. Your neighbor is your spouse, your children, your neighbors. The person you work next to in the cubicle at work, it's your teacher, it's your school friends. It's the person you bump into at the mall. It's everybody. Jesus says you love them. Here's the problem. The Pharisees had completely twisted this. They had completely missed the intent of Jesus' clarification here and what the entire Old Testament taught, they perverted this teaching. Let me list for you a few ways that the scribes and the Pharisees had completely misrepresented this instruction. One is what you can't see. They had actually omitted part of the statement in Leviticus 19, verse 18. Remember, I just read it for you. It says in that verse, you shall not take vengeance or bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now look at verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor. They left that part out. They conveniently omitted part of God's word in order to justify their selfish conduct and to make themselves look better than they actually were. So they perverted it by actually omitting a portion of Scripture. Then secondly, they redefined the definition of the word neighbor. You need to understand that the Jews at this point believed that their neighbor was only a fellow Israelite. That's it. Anyone who was a non-Jew was considered to be outside the covenant community. And so they believed then that they were not obligated to love anyone outside of their covenant community. So the neighbor in their definition of the term was only a fellow Jew, which is why they hated Gentiles. They hated them. Called them dogs and outcasts. You think racial tensions are bad today? You know nothing. We know nothing of racial tensions until we understand what it was like to live in the ancient Near East and the conflict between Jews and Gentiles. That was true racial tension. So they 
omitted a portion of the word. They changed the definition of the term neighbor. And then thirdly, look what they did in verse 43. They actually added to the law. (laughs) By the way, you can always tell a false teacher by what they do with the word of God. They're either going to omit it or they're going to change it or they're going to add to it. That's what the false teachers do. That's what scribes and Pharisees did. They omitted a portion of the word. They changed definitions. And then number three, they added to the law. Look at the end of verse 43. You've heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. You know that's not in the Bible. That's not in the Bible. Nowhere does the Old Testament say you shall hate your enemy, and you can see that because in the New American Standard, it goes back to the normal text, and in the New King James, it's not italicized. That's very clearly showing us that it's not a quotation from the Old Testament. Nowhere in the Old Testament do you find the, the terms love your neighbor and hate your enemy juxtaposition next to each other. It doesn't occur. But they believe that the positive command to love your neighbor also implied a negative command to hate your enemies. This is what's going on in their minds. This is how they're thinking. Their reasoning went like this. Well, if God commands me to love my neighbor and my neighbor is only a fellow Jew, then by implication, I must also have to hate my enemy. And any enemy is those who are outside the covenant community of Jerusalem or Judaism. And so they thought it was their patriotic duty to hate their enemies. They believed it was their business, their responsibility. They were believing that they were under divine commandment to hate their enemies. Now, why? I'll take a minute and just explore this with you. So, I want you to maybe put yourself in the position of a Jewish person living in the first century under the teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees, and I want you just for a moment to, to understand how they got to this point. Beside the fact they're false teachers and beside the fact that they had completely disregarded the word of God as it should have been interpreted, there were a couple things going on in their minds that brought them to this point to think that they could actually legitimately be justified in their hatred of their enemies. The one is what I alluded to before, this conquest under Joshua. We're going to go back to their history. They've come out of the land. They've journeyed through the desert for 40 years under General Joshua. They're about ready to come into the promised land. They're going to cross the Jordan River. And what does God tell them? Kill everybody. Wipe them off the map. Amorites, murder them. Midianites, destroy them. Moabites, blot them out entirely. Canaanites were a cancer that had to be cut out of the land because if they weren't, they would potentially serve as a means of causing the Israelites to engage in spiritual adultery, and that's exactly what happened. They didn't do what God commanded them to do, and so they engaged in spiritual adultery with the people of the land, but originally God said, you need to completely destroy them. You should actually remove the the memory of them from this land. It was a true holy war. By the way, it was the only truly sanctioned holy war in the history of the world. Only one, that one. When God commanded his people to wipe them out, and you need to understand that that was never a license for God's people to hate people. It was a means of God's judgment upon people who deserved God's judgment. And so the people of God in that moment, as they're crossing into the promised land, they are being used by the Lord as instruments of God's judgment, and those cruel, wicked, idolatrous people were being judged by God's people in what they deserved to be judged in. But it was not a license to hate. And that's exactly what the scribes and Pharisees had done. Well, God commanded us to destroy our enemies. I guess we need to hate them. They misunderstood. Example number two, or issue number two of what brought them to this point, was the imprecatory psalms. (laughs) A lot of controversy over the imprecatory psalms. 
those psalms in the Psalter where the psalmist is praying for God to rain down judgment on an enemy, like Psalm 58, oh God, shatter their teeth in their mouth. You ever wanted to pray that prayer? Break out the fangs of the young lions. Let them flow away like water that runs off when he aims his arrows. Let them be as headless shafts. Let them be as a snail which melts away as it goes along, like the miscarriage of a woman which never see the sun. That is hard language. Psalm 139, O God, would you slay the wicked? Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with the utmost hatred. They have become my enemies. You ever had someone come and ask you about this? What do you do with that? What do you do with the imprecatory psalms? Many people have taken those as license to ask God to destroy their enemies so that they would be personally vindicated. That is not what those are for. The imprecatory psalms are not personal vendettas. They are judicial for the nation to want God's name to be vindicated. That's the issue. At stake in the imprecatory psalms is a desire for the honor of God, to, to call down God's judgment on God's enemies so that He's glorified, so that His name is exalted, so that His glory, His fame, His reputation, His honor, His character are, are displayed as holy and that He is shown to be the just God that He is. is. That, that's the issue in the imprecatory psalms. The, the psalmist wants God's character vindicated, not His personal vengeance executed. And you must distinguish between those two when you come to those portions of the Old Testament. They are not personal licenses for us to engage in seeking vengeance. But you can see what the scribes and the Pharisees have done. They read those imprecatory psalms and said, well, the psalmist did it, so I can do it. In fact, they took it as an example for them to follow in how they dealt with their enemies. They forgot that the issue at stake in those was the glory of God, not their personal vindication. So you throw all this together. And the scribes and the Pharisees come to a point where they say in verse 43, you shall love your neighbor. Oh, yeah, you shall love your neighbor. Oh, and by the way, you should hate your enemy too. Complete misrepresentation of the word of God. And by the way, you should have known better. Because in many places, the Old Testament says you need to love your enemy. Exodus chapter 23, verses 4 and 5. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey wandering away, you should return it to him. So next time that happens to you, make sure you bring that donkey back to your enemy. It's biblical. Proverbs 25, verse 21. If your enemy's hungry, give him food to eat. And if he's thirsty, give him water to drink. The Old Testament was very clear. You need to love your enemies. But the scribes and the Pharisees got to a point where they said, no, we're going to hate him. They had ignored the clear teaching of the Old Testament. They had twisted it to fit their self-righteous, superficial religion and they had come to the point where they believed that their hatred was justified. And by the way, that's human nature. That's human nature. To get to a point where you believe your hatred of an individual is justified. And let's just admit it, we all do it. You have no idea how this person has hurt me. 
You have no idea what they have done to me. You don't know what I've been through. You don't know the harm and the hurt that they've caused me. If you walked in my shoes, you would understand this, and you would believe that I got to a point to to hate them if you really understood it from my perspective. And you have no idea what it would cost me to begin loving them again because they've hurt me so much. You just don't understand I'm justified in this hatred. That's what we do. convince ourselves that it's okay to hate others. So the question I want to pose to you at this point is, do you have seeds of hatred buried deep in your heart? Somehow you've gotten to a point where you can excuse those and justify them. Harboring bitterness, harboring angry thoughts, toward them, have you come to a point where you actually think, hey, it's okay because of all they've done to me? That's a sinful attitude towards your enemies. Which then brings us to point number two, a biblical attitude towards your enemies. How are we to think about this in a way that honors Christ? How are we to engage our enemies in a way that truly reflects the heart of Christ and reflects the gospel that we have experienced? What is a biblical attitude towards those who treat us so unjustly? Look at verse 44. Jesus says, but I say to you, and every time he says that little phrase, but I say to you, remember what he is doing. He is clarifying the true intent of the Old Testament. He's going beyond the letter of the law, and he's going to the spirit of the law. He's going beyond their external superficiality, and he's going to their heart. And he says, but I say to you, here's the correct way to understand this issue. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Is this not radical? Does this not go against everything in us? Every part of our fleshly nature just just wants to explode in retribution. We, We just want to get our pound of flesh. And for the man on the street, this idea of loving your neighbors is absolutely absurd. How in the world do you expect me to love my neighbor when, or love my enemy rather, when they've treated me this way? I heard of a lady who went to a doctor and he examined her and got a serious look on his face and she asked him what was wrong and she said, well, I He said to her, I hate to tell you this, but you have rabies. She starts making out a list, and he says, what are you doing? Are you making out your will? She says, no, I'm making a list of the people I'm going to (laughs) bite. Is that not human nature? Isn't that what we want to do? I want to get back. Jesus says, no, you need to love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Someone has well said, to return evil for good is devilish. To return good for good is human. And to return good for evil is divine. And that's what Jesus is calling us to here. He's calling us here to that which is divine. He's calling us to respond to evil with good by actually loving our enemies and praying for those who persecute you. Notice the two phrases here, the two commands. The first one, love your enemies. Agapao them. We get our word agape, or the word agape is used. It's the word for true biblical love, a generous love, a warm love, an invincible love, a a love that comes from the heart, a love that comes from the soul, a, a radical, selfless kind of love. This is agape love. It is a love that, of course, comes when we choose to love this way. Oftentimes, it's not an emotion. Oftentimes, it doesn't come naturally. Oftentimes, you have to choose this kind of love. It's the love of choice. 
It is the love that God has shown us. I remember last week, I think I referenced this verse, Romans chapter 5, verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 10, he says, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. Through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. You understand, believer, if you're here today and you know and love the Lord Jesus Christ, the only reason you are here today worshiping our great God and Savior as a part of his kingdom is because God in his mercy and his agape love for you sought you out in what state? When you were lovable? No, when you were dead in your sin. When you were literally his enemy. This is what Jesus has in mind when he says, love your enemies. And the greater the hurt, the greater needs to be the love. This is hard. This is really hard. And I, I will be the first to admit that even as a pastor, I have, to, I have to wrestle with this. There are people who have hurt me. There, there are people who I love and thought they loved me and yet realize later, wait, that's not the case. Real, legitimate, genuine hurt. And, and I'll just be honest, I've had a hard time on occasions coming to a point where, where I can joyfully and fully say, I do love you. And then I have to remember what someone told me once. They said, Todd, you need to remember that those who are oppressed most and hurt most are those who have the greatest opportunity to display the transforming power of the gospel. You get that? Who has the greatest privilege to display the gospel of Jesus Christ? It's those who are the most hated and the most oppressed. Because that was us. And it was in that state that the Lord showed his mercy to his enemies. And so if you are in the category of one who is most oppressed and most hurt, which by the way has implications for this whole racial tension issue that we've been talking about for a long time. Those people in that state have the greatest opportunity to show love. And then second, notice what he says in verse 44. You must also pray for those who persecute you. You must pray for them. And by the way, you're going to be persecuted. We saw it up in chapter 5, verses 10 through 12. Just go up a few verses to chapter, 10, verse, or chapter 5, verses 10 through 12. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you. In other words, it's going to happen. There's going to come a day when you are going to be hated, whether it's because you're a person who just lives godly in this world, or maybe you find yourself at odds with a fellow believer in the church, whatever it is, you're going to find yourself at times at odds with people in the world and at times fellow believers. And Jesus says you need to pray for them. You do what Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, you go to them through the medium of prayer to stand alongside of them and to plead for them to God. They don't want you around, and maybe you don't want to be around them because they hate you and you hate them, but what are you going to do in that moment and in that relationship? You're actually going to go stand next to them, as it were, in prayer, and you're going to plead for them to God. This is what love does. Love always results in a concrete action. Love doesn't just stay in the sentimentality. Love always results in clear acts, volitional acts, concrete, definitive, tangible expressions of that love. And so what is one of the best ways that you're going to show your love for your enemies? You're going to pray for them. Genuinely. Because when you pray for them, your heart grows for them. Is that not the case? 
I just told you, there's some people who've really hurt me. And I've had a battle in my own heart, my attitude towards them. And I can guarantee you, the more I've prayed for them, the more my heart has softened towards them. Because when you pray for someone, your love for them grows. You're to pray for your enemies. That's what Stephen did. Acts chapter 7, verse 15, or verse 60, falling on his knees, Stephen cried out with a loud voice, by the way, as they were stoning him to death. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. It's what Jesus did. Literally, most scholars believe as they're driving the nails into his flesh in the very moment, in the middle of his own agony, in that very scene where the Son of God is being placed on the cross and held there by spikes of iron. Jesus says, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. He's praying for his enemies. Spurgeon says, prayer is the forerunner of mercy. Prayer is the forerunner of mercy. So if you find your heart struggling to show mercy to your enemy, you need to pray for them. And while they're hating you, you're loving them more and more. told you a couple years ago about a soldier by the name of Jacob de Shazer. Fascinating story out of World War II. He was a young man who enlisted in the Army Air Corps. It wasn't the Air Force at that time. There was no Air Force. During World War II, it was the Army Air Corps. And he enlisted because of what the Japanese did at Pearl Harbor. And he went in because he wanted to pay them back for all that they did at Pearl Harbor. And he signed up eventually to be one of the Doolittle Raiders. 16 B-25s that took off from the USS Hornet, and their goal, their mission was to bomb Tokyo and land back at the Hornet, but they realized that they probably had been found out, so they needed to launch the mission as soon as possible. So they launched knowing that they would have to ditch their aircraft somewhere in China because they didn't have enough fuel to return. And so after his plane drops its bombs on Tokyo, they crash land in China. And the day after he crashes, he's caught by the Japanese, made a prisoner of war and imprisoned for 40 months, most of those in solitary confinement. Somehow he gets his hands on a Bible. He says this, I eagerly began to read its pages And I discovered that God had given me new spiritual eyes and that when I looked at the enemy officers and guards who had starved and beaten my companions and me so cruelly, I found my bitter hatred for them changed to loving pity. I realized that these people did not know anything about my Savior and that if Christ is not in a heart, it is natural to be cruel. Came to Christ. As a POW in Japan, was released eventually when the war ended in August of 45, went back to the States and he began praying, Lord, send me back as a missionary to my enemies. He went to seminary, moved to Japan, established a church in the very city he bombed wrote a pamphlet about the gospel that was eventually put in the hands of Mitsuo Fuchida, who was the leader of the Japanese planes that bombed Pearl Harbor. And he came to Christ. And that man and Jacob DeShazer teamed up in Japan and preached the gospel. Because a man prayed for his enemies. 
so that person I asked you to think about, are you praying for them? Are you, are you praying for the Lord to help you see them for who they really are? If they're not a believer, they need Christ. And of course they're going to treat you the way they're treating you because they don't know any different. So are you praying for the Lord to help you see them for who they really are? And are you praying that the Lord would help your heart remain soft towards them rather than hard? And are you praying for their salvation, that the God of this world would be like the one who shone the light in the darkness, or the one who shone the, the light of the gospel and the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ? Are you praying that? And are you praying for God to grant them repentance? This is what Jesus has in mind here. To love your enemies and to pray for those who persecute you. Why? Let me give you a little motivation here as we wrap this up. Two reasons why you need to respond this way to your enemies. First letter A is to imitate the Lord's kindness. Reason number one that we need to respond this way is in order to imitate the Lord's kindness. Look at verse 45. So that, and when you see a so that, that means there's a reason coming. There's a motivation coming. Here's why we must be the kind of people who love our enemies. Verse 45, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. In other words... You're to love your enemies and pray for them because that's how God treats his enemies. How do you know that's how God treats his enemies? Jesus tells us. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. You don't have to be a believer to see the sun, and you don't have to be a believer to have food on your table. Where do those come from? The common grace of God for all people. God loves people, all people, in a sense that all people get to enjoy his common grace. Now, God's love for his own is different. There is a higher love that God has for those who are his. There is a particular love that God has for his own. But that's not to diminish the fact that God does love all people, as demonstrated in the fact that he shows common grace to them. So if God gives his enemies food and lets them see the sun on their face and lets them get married and have children and have a job and earn money and have a house... Enjoy some of the blessings of life. If that's how God treats his enemies, shouldn't we as well? Reason number two, to transcend the world's attitude. To transcend the world's attitude. Look at verses 46 and 47. This is what distinguishes us from the world. Look what Jesus says. For, here's another reason, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Jesus is saying, listen, if you only love the people that love you back, what do you want? Some prize? Everybody does that. Big deal. You're no different than the world. Love shown to only those in our tribe is no more than what the rest of the world does. And to prove that, Jesus says about the tax collectors, do not even the tax collectors do the same thing. Most despised, hated people of that day were the tax collectors. But even they, even these double-crossing, disgusting tax collectors loved their own tax-collecting buddies. You see how this would have been a strike right at the heart of the scribes and the Pharisees. Jesus says, you think you're awesome? You think you're doing a good job of loving people and hating your enemies? You're no different than the tax collectors. 
Verse 47, if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You see the point? You're no different than the world. If all you do is love the people that love you back, you're no different than anyone else. So the charge here, the admonition is that our love as a citizen of Christ's kingdom needs to be much higher. At a much higher standard than the rest of the world. How do you have it? Verse 48, therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You say, that's impossible. That's right. And that's the point. You can't love like this. Nor can I. So the only way for you and I to love like this is if Christ has changed our hearts. And then and only then can our love for others be unlimited. So who are you when someone hurts you? What comes out when someone treats you unjustly? We need to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. Let's pray. Father, these are hard truths. Hard things to hear because it goes against everything in us. And yet, Lord, we need to hear these things. We want to be like Christ. We want to be like you, Father, who showed us great mercy before we were believers. When we, in fact, were your enemies and when we received the the benefits of your common grace. Lord, we want to be like that. So, Lord, as we leave here today and as we reflect on these truths and as you bring to mind the people who this applies to in our life, we ask that you'll give us the grace the grace to respond as Christ would want us to respond, the grace to love as we are called to love, the grace to forgive as we're called to forgive, the grace to love supernaturally in a way that only comes from you in and through us. So Lord, we commit all these things to you and we look forward to what you're going to do in Christ's name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon by Pastor Todd Dykstra, teaching pastor of Maranatha Bible Church in Comstock Park, Michigan, where we exist to display God's glory, declare God's truth, delight in God's Son, and disciple God's people. No part of this digital file may be reproduced or distributed without prior written consent. For permission, go to mbcmi.org.